2 Samuel 9 this morning, 2 Samuel 9, and uh, <clears throat> this morning we get to look at the wonderful case of Mephibosheth, David and Mephibosheth, as uh, recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 9, I invite you to stand with me as we read the passage together, 2 Samuel chapter 9, I'll read the whole chapter to you, just 13 verses, uh, we'll begin in verse 1. Of course, these are the words of God. And David said, Is there yet any that is left in the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was at the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any in the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of the maker, the son of Amiel, and the Lodabar. And David, then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of the maker, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, Come unto David, fell on his face, and did reverence. And David said to Phibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, what is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertained to Saul and to all his house. Now therefore thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may approve to eat. Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread alway at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, According to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son, whose name was Micah. And all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame on both his feet. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for this wonderful story of Mephibosheth. I thank you uh, for David and his commitment to the covenant that was made between him and Jonathan. And I thank you also for the beautiful illustration that we find here of your grace. I pray that we would see it more vividly, that we would see in this story, as in all the stories of the Bible, that we would see you, that we would see you in your fullness of glory, in your grace, in your kindness to us, that we would see how it's illustrated here in this passage that we would believe, and that we would follow Christ. Please help me as I open the word to your people, 
that I would be able to make the scriptures plain, that our duty would be clear to us, and that we would grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. When Saul and Jonathan died on the battlefield, Saul's uncle, Abner, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and set him up as king in Maonam. Maonam is in the land of Gilead on the east side of the Jordan River. So it was at a safe distance out of reach of David, or at least out of easy reach of David at that time. And of course, you'll remember that there was uh, a back and forth for about seven years that David reigned in Judah and Ishbosheth reigned in Israel. And there was this um, conflict, but not intense warfare, a sort of guerrilla, sort of civil war between the two. And the house of David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And then one day, Ishbosheth was murdered, you remember, and uh, Israel came to David sometime afterwards and appealed to him to become their king. A wealthy and powerful man lived in the region of Maonam, in a small, obscure village, unknown to us as far as location in this day, but a place called Lodabar. Now, just for entertainment, if you Google Lodabar, you will find lists, pages of sermons that have been preached about Lodabar. It is a popular topic for sermons, and there's a reason for it. And I'm going to explain that reason here in a moment. <clears throat> this man, powerful man, um, who became a ward, a, a, a caretaker, I should say, a guardian, for the crippled Mephibosheth, was a man by the name of Maker, I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing that right, because I'm quite confident that the C-H is supposed to, you know, in the Hebrew, the C-H is supposed to be pronounced with an H. It's supposed to be pronounced like you're talking about Lee, like, <laughs> or something like that, and I don't have it exactly right, and and I I was a little lazy. I didn't, I didn't look up exactly how to say it because I was already um, struggling with another word that I'm going to be using here in a little bit. And uh, it's too many words to try to pronounce at one time. So we'll just call him Maker. I know that Maker sounds like Maker, you know, like a clock maker or something. But um, anyway, bear with me. Maker, the son of Emil, was from Lodibar. Now the Hebrew word Debar, it's one of those broad, generic terms that a lot of different items can fall under, all right? In fact, we have our, our English equivalent for the Hebrew debar is the word thing, all right? Now think about how many different things can be called a thing, not to mention your brother, right? Um, the thing, right? You know, the thing, right? Uh, you're not with me on the political joking this morning. But anyway, 
you can fit a lot under the term debar. Things you want, things you need, things you have. Now the Hebrew low is a negative. Literally, no. Low means no. You uh, go to uh, the sons of Hosea, and uh, Hosea was called, he was commanded when his sons were born to call them, and each of their names began with lo. Lo ami, not my people. Right? Mm -hmm. So, lo debar means literally no thing. Nothing. I know I'm, I'm diving deep. Like we're in the we're we're in the deep, you know, the tall grass right now, way out in the weeds on this. But but Lodibar means nothing. Not that it means nothing, right? Like was it um, the Cyclops and Odysseus uh, sharpened a stick and heated it in the fire and poked him in the eye? And when he asked the the Cyclops asked who did that, he said nobody. And then the Cyclops is complaining that nobody is poking him in the eye. You get the joke, right? Lodibar means nothing. It, it, it means nothing you want, nothing you need, no pastor, no possession, nothing to offer, no hope, no place. You can see why Preachers would zero in on that and want to preach that to you. Some have called it the ghetto of Israel. It was named, as so many names in that time were, it was named for the features of the land themselves. It was not a fruitful land. It was not a fruitful place. It was not a place where a man could flourish. There was a wealthy, powerful man who was there, perhaps he was wealthy and powerful because he controlled trade routes. That was a pretty common thing in that day for a wealthy man. But there's this barren land, and Mephibosheth is living there under the protection of this man, Napier. Mephibosheth was five years old when he arrived in Lodibar. On the day when his father and grandfather were killed on the battlefield, Mephibosheth's nurse picked him up and carried him so that they could travel faster to escape. In the rush to escape, Mephibosheth's nurse panicked, dropped him, damaged his legs. They never healed, perhaps because he was in Lodibar and there was no help for him there. And so he was a cripple from the age of five onward, she carried him across the Jordan River to Lodibar. And for at least 15 years, <clears throat> Mephibosheth lived there in this barren, desolate, hopeless place as a ward of Mehir. Then one fateful day, the steward of the house of Saul appeared with a summons. Ziba was servant, but more than servant, he was steward of Saul's household, of his possessions. And the summons delivered by Ziba was that Mephibosheth 
was to appear before the king. <clears throat> that day was to be his last day in Lodibar. It wouldn't be his last day because of anything that he would do. He couldn't walk, remember? He couldn't take himself out of Lodabar. He couldn't walk out. He was crippled. He was lame. He had no strength to leave, no power to leave, no ability to leave. But that day would be his last day in Lodabar. He couldn't provide for himself. He couldn't manage to scrape together the money necessary so that he could afford to leave Lodabar. He was, in a sense, a prisoner to the barrenness, a prisoner to the desolation, a prisoner to the hopelessness and helplessness of Lodabar. <clears throat> but on this day, he would leave Lodabar. He couldn't escape Lodabar on his own, by his own power. It wouldn't be his last day in Lodabar because he wanted to leave. He had always desired to leave. And finally, his wish came true. Honestly, I doubt, highly doubt that Mephibosheth wanted to leave Lodabar. I think that Mephibosheth was happy to live in obscurity in a desolate place because I think he thought living there under the protection of Mahir that he would escape David's detection because remember that it was customary among the king among the kings when one king deposed another or took his place the rival king's family was <clears throat> killed hunted down and slaughtered no potential rivals were allowed to live and so I think that Mephibosheth had lived for 15 years in fear that David would come and would kill him, would capture him and kill him. So I think that it's safe to say that Mephibosheth was content to stay where he was in obscurity, in this place of hopelessness and barrenness. <clears throat> the house of Saul was ruined. The rival to Saul's throne was now reigning over Israel. He had conquered and captured Jerusalem and had made it the capital of the nation. <clears throat> he had established his kingdom in battle, driving out the enemies of Israel, spreading his dominion to the far reaches of the promised land. Anyone connected to the house of Saul knew the custom among the kings of that day. It was common, as I said, for the new king to kill every surviving member of the former the king. So <clears throat> any future rivals could be eliminated. I imagine that the crippled Mephibosheth knew that he was in no position to fight against David, to defend himself, that his ability to defend himself, even, by the way, even if he was a great warrior, a valiant warrior, which the house of Saul was not normally <clears throat> producing, though his father, Jonathan, was a, a valiant man. But I imagine that there was really not much help for Mephibosheth, no matter what. Even if he had been healthy, he would not 
been ready to take on David, but especially as a cripple, there was no desire for him to take on David. <clears throat> Mephibosheth didn't leave Lodabar because he wanted to, he probably didn't want to. Mephibosheth left Lodabar because the king wanted him to leave, because the king called him to leave, in fact. When he stood before the king, he fell on his face and did reverence. David said his name, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth responded, Behold thy servant. And David said to him, Fear not. It's evident to me when that's the first thing, after saying his name, the first thing David said to him, fear not, is evident to me that Mephibosheth's fear to stand in the presence of David must have been visible. Here is a weak man, a helpless man, a hopeless man, summoned to stand before the king who is a rival to his stand. Mephibosheth would have been born in the palace, born into status, importance. A bright future lay ahead for him, and then he was dropped. His father was killed in the battle. Another king, the rival, took the throne. What help is there for Mephibosheth? And as he stands there, or is carried in, I would assume, before King David, he knows. Have you ever, have you ever stood in front of a judge, like because you were on trial for something? You're thinking, Pastor Shirley. Yeah, of course I have. <coughs> Speeding tickets, parking tickets, um, my dog. I got in trouble for my dog one time. That was the scariest one to me because the guy before me got, I mean, my hammer for his dog. I was, I'm standing there and the, the, the judge says, in lieu of a year in jail, I sentenced you to, and I was like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. I can go to jail for a year right now. I need, I need a lawyer. There is that moment when you're standing before the judge that you think this man could ruin my life right now. This man has the power. Now, if you took that and magnify it a thousandfold, that is how Mephibosheth felt when he stood before David. The poverty and barrenness of Lodibar was much more attractive to him than to stand before the king who had the power and, in Mephibosheth's mind, must have had the motivation also to eliminate me permanently. And as Mephibosheth stands there, David says, Fear not. Fear not. And his days of fear torment, of hiding, of dread, of hopelessness, of barrenness, of poverty, <clears throat> were over. 
Today would be his last day in Lodabar. From this day forward, Mephibosheth will have a seat at the king's table. Now David's kindness to Mephibosheth gives us a beautiful demonstration of the motivation, mercy, and magnificence of God's loving kindness. Those three things I want to show you this morning. First of all, see the motivation in David's kindness. In the first verse, David alludes to his motivation. Notice what chapter 9 and verse 1 says. Is there yet any that is left in the house of Saul? Notice that I might may show kindness, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. For Jonathan's sake. In order to understand this, we need to pause for a minute and we need to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. You might remember that chapter. It's the famous target shooting chapter. When Jonathan goes out in the field and he fires three arrows. And he has arranged a signal with David. David is to hide somewhere. Jonathan doesn't know where. But he's to hide in the vicinity where Jonathan shoots. And then Jonathan shoots the arrows. And then he tells David, if I say this, it means this. And if I say that, it means that. So the whole thing was a code. So that Jonathan could communicate to David his father's demeanor towards David, whether or not David was in danger for his life. Verse 21 of 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan said this, If I expressly say unto the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of thee, take them, then come thou, for there is peace to thee, and no hurt, as the Lord will. But if I say thus unto the young man, Behold, the arrows are beyond thee. Go thy way, for the Lord has sent thee away. But before Jonathan set up this coded message for David, the Bible tells us that Jonathan first made a covenant with David. Verse 16, So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again because he loved him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Jonathan makes this covenant with David as really an official handing over of his right to the throne to David. That's what Jonathan is doing here. He's not just admitting it. He's not just reluctantly, reluctantly giving it up. But he is saying, I give you my right to the throne of Israel. I give it to you. <clears throat> and in doing so, Jonathan pledges to David his love and loyalty, regardless of what might happen to Jonathan. Now, Kesed is at the heart of this covenant. Kesed is the Old Testament word, Hebrew word, normally translated mercy, but also translated loving kindness, or in this passage, and in our text, I should say, in Second Chronicles, I'm sorry, Second Samuel 
chapter 9, the word kindness is used three times. And that word kindness translates the Hebrew word kesed. <clears throat> kesed is at the heart of this covenant. Jonathan's steadfast love that provoked him to make the covenant and that characterizes the covenant all throughout. His covenant with David is an expression of his love for David and his also of the security of that covenant because this covenant is based not on law but on love. See, that's the beauty of it. Kesed and covenant are always tied together. That mercy, that, that covenant faithfulness, that steadfast love is built, in fact, on love. It is inspired by love, motivated by love. And love leads me to make this covenant with you, to make this eternal commitment to you. So the Bible ties the two together. Jonathan makes this covenant with David as an expression of his love, of his faithfulness, of his undying fidelity to David as Israel's future king. Jonathan bound himself under an oath. In verse 12, the end of the verse of uh, 1 Samuel 20, Behold, if there be good toward David, and I then send not unto thee, and showeth thee, the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. So Jonathan bound himself under a curse that God would punish him if Jonathan did not share good news with David regarding King Saul. But if it please my father to do the evil, then I will show it thee and send thee away, and that thou mayest go in peace, and the Lord be with thee as he hath been with my father. Having set forth then his own covenant obligations in 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan then rehearsed David's obligation under the terms of the same covenant. Verse 14, And thou shalt not only while yet I live show me the kindness, that is the kesed of the Lord, that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy Kindness, that is again, Kesed, from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. So Jonathan, in the covenant, bound David to show this Kesed, the Kesed of the Lord, to his posterity, to his children, to his household. And when Jonathan had set forth David's covenant obligations, then 1 Samuel 20 tells us that Jonathan made David swear. Not because Jonathan distrusted him, but as verse 17 says, because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. We jump forward then to the end of 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel in chapter 9. And by the time we get to 2 Samuel 9, 
Jonathan is long dead. The house of Saul has been relegated to the dust heap of history. David has defeated his enemies and spread his dominion to the furthest reaches of the promised land. He is mighty, powerful, well-established, and he has no need of anything whatsoever from the house of Saul. The house of Saul has faded, a shadow of its former self, almost an ironic representation in this cripple, Mephibosheth, kind of symbolizes what the house of Saul has fallen to. There is nothing, nothing that requires David to even think about the covenant he made with Jonathan. Jonathan has turned to dust. His memory has faded. No one was there when David made that covenant with Jonathan. Nobody saw it. Nobody witnessed it except Jonathan. Oh, <clears throat> and the Lord. But David is committed. Committed. And does not allow the busyness of his rule does not allow his sense of self-importance to keep him from fulfilling that word to Jonathan. What does David do? He searches throughout the land for any survivors of the house of Saul. It's interesting to me that 2 Samuel chapter 9 does not even mention this covenant that was made between David and Jonathan. And yet, we all know that that is central to this story. It underlies it. It is the background, the backdrop of everything that David does here. This is why he does it, but not all of why. What's interesting to me is when you read verse 1, and when David says, for Jonathan's sake, you quickly recognize his love and affection for Jonathan that still is strong 15 years after his friend is dead. It would be easy to gloss over the covenant between these two or to minimize his importance to the story. We live in a day that just has no regard for such things. Dale Davis, in his commentary on this chapter, <laughs> refers to the movie Out of Africa. Robert Redford's character carries on a torrid affair with a married woman. And after her divorce, she asks the man Redford is playing, she asks him to marry her, and Redford responds, Do you think I'll love you more because of a piece of paper? It's sad to me that in this day and age, we live in a time where that's the way we look at a covenant. Yeah. It's a piece of paper. That's it. It's just a piece of paper. That movie was made in 1985. It's safe to say that in the nearly 40 years since then, we have totally abandoned the idea of covenant. Yes. 
It is commonplace in our day. Fornication is commonplace in our day. Every form of sexual infidelity and immorality is commonplace in our day, and it is accepted as well. It blows my mind the way churches are okay. Look the other way. Ignore or even, you know, shake hands and clap together. Hold baby showers for babies born out of wedlock. Well, I understand if people sin and they repent, that's one thing, but it's quite another when the church will not deal with it, will not address it, will not say anything about it, and have among their membership people who are openly shacking up, living in fornication, and will say nothing about it, act like it's commonplace. I know this, even members of my own family who do this, it's, it, it just is amazing to me. Faithful members of a church, they get a girlfriend and she's next thing she's spending the night at his house, sleeping with him for months on end. What have we come to? What do we think? Does, does the holiness of God mean nothing to us? The whole idea do you think I'll love you more because of a piece of paper? Little no and yes, of course. If you really love the person, you don't want to use their body for your own gratification. But you do intend to commit yourself to them in marriage. And make a covenant with them and the Lord that you will be true to them, faithful to them throughout their lives. I read of B.B. Warfield, who, when he was in his 30s, taking a walk with his wife, and a sudden storm came on them that was so severe that it shocked her system, and she was nearly an invalid for the rest of their marriage. And Warfield stayed by her side, would leave for at the most two hours at a time so that he could be there and take care of his wife throughout the rest of their marriage. Now I'm just guessing that she wasn't the lovely, vivacious woman that he fell in love with. But she was the woman he committed to. Now we, in our culture, we just think, you know, I mean, easy come, easy go. It's, we don't want to be tied down. I had a young lady who grew up in this church who told me, well, you know, I believe the Bible. I just think that preachers make too much of things in the Bible, and then went on to tell me how she was glad that the man she lived with for nine years, she didn't marry. She said, because it would have been really messy when it came time to split. Like, that's what we're preparing for now. The eventuality that this is not going to survive. 
the chaos, the mess of our homes goes back to this thing right here. No wonder our culture has rejected the idea of marriage, even considers it better to shack up. No strings attached. It's less messy when we split up, you know? Because that's become the expectation. As I said, even our churches tolerate fornication. It's become commonplace among the membership of the church. And why? Because you know a piece of paper can't make you love somebody. That's all we think of a covenant. It can't make you love more. But this is contrary to scripture. In fact, that piece of paper demonstrates that you do love more. And it commits you, it obligates you to love for the rest of your natural life. That's the point of it. And yes, you are bound by that. You are. <clears throat> this kind of thing shows a terrible irreverence and disrespect for a covenant. I've explained to you in the past that the contract is broken if either one party or the other fails to uphold their end of the deal. But a covenant cannot be broken. It binds both sides without regard for the other side's faithfulness to fulfill their part. Jonathan has been dead for at least 15 years. And David asks, is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? There literally is nothing Nothing, humanly speaking, nothing that obligates David to look for the family of Jonathan. Nothing. Nothing pushes him, nothing motivates him, except for that covenant that he made with Jonathan, now dead, long dead. And yet, that is the motivation for this unbelievable act of mercy and kindness of chesed. He has all the power. He is the king. He has triumphed and prevailed over the house of Saul. The house of Saul has been brought to nothing. They can trouble David no more. If he disregarded that covenant as, you know, well, it was just, I, I was young. We were emotional. It seemed kind of romantic in the moment. Nobody would criticize David, especially in this day. Nobody would see it as a failure on David's part. Nobody would criticize him. He would not find himself on the wrong side of history. After what he endured at the hand of Saul, who could blame him? But David doesn't see it that way. In fact, we see in David's behavior something more than mere commitment to his word. The passage gives two reasons for David's kindness to Mephibosheth. In verse 1, he does it for Jonathan's sake. And in verse 3, that I may show the chesed, the kindness 
of God unto him. That's what David is after here. To show not just for Jonathan's sake, but because he wishes to show the kindness of God to Mephibosheth. And that is exactly what he's going to do. I want you to then notice the second point here and see the mercy in David's kindness. Because this kesed, this loyal love, this loving kindness, uh, this mercy as it's often rendered in the Old Testament, is clearly what David wishes to extend to the house of Saul through Mephibosheth, particularly as Jonathan's child. The covenant between Jonathan and David was made as an expression of love and as a pledge of loyalty by Jonathan to David and by David in return to Jonathan. Keep in mind that Jonathan made this not because he was afraid of what David would do when he became king, but because he loved David as his own soul. That's why he made this covenant with David. That was what obligated it, or what, what motivated it, I should say. Again, not Jonathan's fear of David, fear that he would become something different than what he was prior to becoming the king. But because Jonathan revered him, loved him, honored him, cherished him, therefore he made this covenant with David. At the time the covenant was made, Jonathan held all the power. He was the prince. <clears throat> he was the one in control. He could have sold David down the river. Could have ended his life right there. But Jonathan loved David. He loved him. And so he committed to him. <clears throat> Jonathan was under no obligation to make this covenant with David. He found no benefit to himself to making this covenant. He made it purely out of love for David. Of course, the model for Kesed is the Lord himself. We would really not have any way of grasping, understanding the extent, the magnitude of this Hebrew, this Kesed, this loving kindness, this tender mercy of the Lord, if it were not for God's love for his people. This is the nature, in fact, of chesed, that God loves his people, and because he loves his people, he puts himself under obligation to protect us and defend us and provide for us. This is the gospel in itself. We see it in, in a micro sense, looking at David and all his power and Mephibosheth and all his helplessness and weakness. And seeing David obligated by nothing other than the obligation he's placed himself under, reaching out to be kind, to be a friend, to, be, to, to, to provide for Mephibosheth. How much more is that true than the way God has reached out to you and me? I mean, if Mephibosheth is crippled, you and I are like small ants, like the small dust of the earth. We have nothing to offer God. Nothing. And we have no power 
Like even for Mephibosheth, you know, if he had a dagger in the right place and he threw it at the right time, he might be able to kill one of his avengers if somebody came to kill him. But not you and me. There is nothing, literally nothing, that we could ever raise up against the Lord. We are totally under his power. He is completely free of any obligation to us, except that he has placed himself, bound himself, to love us Amen. and to be kind to us, to extend to us this chesed of Amen. the Lord. Chesed literally refers to the steadfast, loyal love God has for his people. As Dale Davis said, it's not merely love, but loyal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. When the covenant was made, Jonathan was the one in power, and now David is the one in power. Jonathan is dead. So notice the way the Bible presents Mephibosheth. When we first encounter him in the fourth chapter, he's a five-year-old boy dropped by his nurse in the panic to escape the Philistines. That lameness becomes an important feature of the story. Notice how it is repeated. In verse 3, the king said, Is there yet not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. And verse 13, the last verse of the chapter. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame on both his feet. God wants to emphasize this, his lameness, his helplessness. God wants to stress it to you so that you will not be confused about what is happening here. The word servant is one of the most prominent words in this chapter. It appears 10 times out of the 13 verses in this chapter. It is the servant, probably the steward, as I said, of Saul's house, still alive and operating Saul's property, who David calls on to track down Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth lives in the house of Mekir, the son of Emil, from Lodibar. Now, as I said before, Lodibar is a popular subject for um, preachers. And uh, I enjoyed last night, when I, uh, before I went to bed, I watched a couple of these sermons, and some of these guys really get into it, you know. Like, get your toothbrush and your toothpaste, because you're leaving Lodibar, right? Get your bathrobe and your slippers because you're leaving Lodibar. And you can go on and on and on with this and make much of leaving Lodibar. But you know, I, I like to point out to you that the point of all of these passages is never the characters in the passages. It's never about David. It's never about Mephibosheth. It's never about Saul or Jonathan. It is always about God. David wishes to, to extend to Mephibosheth as representative of the house of Saul. He wishes to extend to him the chesed of God. 
That is what he is doing here. And so I want you to notice how this plays out. <clears throat> Ziba has grown prosperous. Fifteen sons. Twenty servants. This is not normal for a servant. That's why I think he's the steward. I think also the Hebrew word that's rendered servant here probably it, it seems to indicate that he's the steward. But regardless of that, in some way, somehow, Ziba has gained his prosper because of Saul's property. Because he's continued to maintain it. So one of two things is happening. Either Ziba is sending a cut to David, that would be my guess, and then keeping a cut for himself, and so prospering by that. So he is prospering off the land, and meanwhile, Mephibosheth is in Lodibar, a ward of Machir. We find Mephibosheth in this place of poverty and emptiness while Ziba prospers. But our text highlights one other feature of Mephibosheth that we must not overlook. Because nine times in the passage, the passage refers to the house of Saul or the house of Jonathan. Mephibosheth belongs to the house that hunted David, that made his life a train wreck for many years. <coughs> I've, I'm repeating myself, but if David behaved himself the way kings typically did in his day, he would have gathered up, rounded up all the survivors of the house of Saul and would have executed them all. And that is exactly the point that our text is highlighting. In fact, one of the things I've taught you to do as we go through 1st, 2nd Samuel is to look at the middle of the chapter and, I, and notice. And I want you to notice, there's sandwiched here between David's instruction to Ziba in verses 6, 7, and 8. You have David speaking to Mephibosheth. And I want you to notice a couple of things in that central passage. When David speaks to Ziba, he always speaks as king. The, the Bible says that the king said, the king said, it repeats it over and over. But when we come to verses 6, 7, and 8, when David speaks to Mephibosheth at the center of the chapter, David speaks as David. As David. He's not king. He's friend. He invites Mephibosheth to share his table. He gives him, in fact, a place at his table. And he did that for Jonathan's sake. It was all mercy, none deserved, no obligation to David other than the obligation he had taken on himself out of love for Jonathan. Yet, as you can see, there's more to this chesed than David showing kindness and sparing Mephibosheth. That's all Jonathan asked of David. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 14, let me rehearse it to you again. 
This is what Jonathan said. And thou shalt not only while yet I live show me the kindness of the Lord, that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, everyone from the face of the earth. This is the covenant obligation. What Jonathan laid out for David was that you will not kill me and you will not cut off my children. That's the obligation. But I want you to notice the way David went far beyond that obligation. Mephibosheth must have been very aware of the custom among kings to cut off their rivals. Notice the way he responds to David. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, this is verse 7, the central verse, by the way, of the chapter. He fell on his face and did reverence, and David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, this is verse 7, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness, that's chesed, for Jonathan thy father's sake. And will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Now I want you to see the way David extended beyond the covenant obligation, went beyond that with Mephibosheth. I want you to see the magnificence of David's kindness. First of all, David spoke kindly to Mephibosheth. When he spoke to Ziba, as I pointed out already, he spoke as king. But when he spoke to Mephibosheth, he spoke as David. Second, we can guess that either David or Ziba were profiting from Saul's land. As I pointed out to you already, what I think the arrangement was I think Saul, I'm sorry, Ziba continues uh, to plant and harvest off of Saul's land and raise cattle and sheep and so on on Saul's land and send a share of the proceeds to King David and keep a share also for himself as his living. But Mephibosheth is not receiving any living from the property, the ancestral land of his family, the house of Saul. <clears throat> Since David, and by the way, I mean, the fact that Ziba has 15 sons and 20 servants, tells you that the Bible repeats that later on. 15 sons, it's, it's possible that he had 15 sons from one wife. That's possible. That was a mark of prosperity in that day, but even more so, more common was that Ziba had multiple wives, which would show a prosperous house. That was the way in that day men showed their prosperity, was in the number of wives that they had. The number of servants that he had shows that he's prosperous. He's enriched himself. I don't say that in order to criticize Ziba. We'll come back to Ziba later on and see some things with him. I'm just saying that Mephibosheth is cut off, desolate. So notice what David did. 
David gave the land as a grant to Mephibosheth. So, so that tells me then that David must have been prospering from that land. But David gave it to Mephibosheth so that he could have a living. And he made Ziba become Mephibosheth's servant. But now David assigned the prophets from the land also to the house of Mephibosheth. Verse 7, And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. 